0: Welcome to the Tuesday, week eight review edition of the pod. I'm going to break down all the week's action, including my proprietary adjusted scores to give you a better framing of all the games. I'm going to review a successful but could have been even more successful week of best bets and an idea of what to expect from a lot of teams in the future. This is Unexpected Points and NFL's number one analytics podcast. Let's get to it. Hey everybody, week eight is in the books, backup quarterback week, I guess a lot of people are calling it. I'm going to go through the games here, and I'm going to do it in a way where it's not chronological. I'm going to pick out ones I think they're most important first, most viewed, probably second, and then work my way down, hitting on the results for my best bets along the way. What I noticed in the last podcast, when I went over the Thursday night game is that there's some confusion about the adjusted scores I'm going to talk about for each game. So the adjusted scores are the foundation of a lot of my analysis on these games because they translate the actual results, what we're seeing for the actual scores, and they translate that into a more stable number that encapsulates better how a team is played when we discount Uh, different actions by their randomness. I don't want to go into exactly how it's calculated because there are many, many moving parts. But the basic gist of it is it looks more at success rate. So it looks more at on a play-by-play basis, how often are you being successful than it does at the efficiency that you're driving on those plays. So it's going to discount some of the big plays that you make, which can be more random. And it's going to discount the big negatives that teams have, which are generally on offense are turnovers. It's going to discount a lot of special teams play. It's going to discount the fact that if one team makes a bunch of long field goals, another one misses short field goals, it's going to adjust for that. It's going to adjust for muffed punts. It's going to adjust for blocked field goals, things like that, which it's not going to fully discount them. But on a game-by-game basis, there's more randomness in those events than there is an actual signal for what's going to happen. So it does all those sorts of things. And then it brings in the proprietary PFF metrics like turnover-worthy plays and drops Um, to help figure out whether or not the results, sometimes you'll have a lot of dropped interceptions that didn't end up happening. I'm going to, to ding a team for that. And if you have a lot of drops, then I'm going to give a team a little bit more credit than they would have had because of those drops. And all of that comes together to come through a better adjusted score. And I think that helps us when we're analyzing whether or not something was a good bet in particular versus the spread. And that's what I'm going to do here for these games. So with that primer out of the way, which I hopefully will not have to do every show, but I'm going to do it because there are a lot of new people who watch on YouTube. Let's get into the week's action. I'm going to start with last night's game on Monday Night Football. You probably have seen a few or watched a few podcasts over the last day. They're talking about a lot of the week eight action. So let's start with what's new here first. So Kansas City against the New York Giants. The actual ending score, 2017 Chiefs. The Chiefs were ten and a half point favorites when this closed. My adjusted score is 25 to 20. So both teams scores a little bit better than what they actually performed at. With a lot of field goals, they do not convert into touchdowns and interception, of course, in the end zone for Kansas City. Um, but only a five point differential there. So what? I'll, the other thing I'm going to do here for all these different games I'm going to have a headline for the game and this is a headline that I think is what you're typically going to be hearing out there a wrap up for what we're typically going to hear and then I'm going to give you an alternative headline uh my alternative facts here right about what happened that you should be thinking about or a way to to pivot a little bit off of what the headline is to get a better view of how to view teams and games and outcomes going forward. So the headline in this game is going to be that the Chiefs offense is broken, is now officially broken after struggling. My alternative headline is now we should start worrying about the Chiefs offense. And I think that's how we should think about it. It's not that it's broken or that this is a surefire fact that the Chiefs are going to struggle going forward, but that we have enough evidence now to start to be worried, which I was not really worried before. And this is, let's think about the, the main metrics here. This is the third game this season out of eight games where Patrick Mahomes has had a negative EPA per play. So that's my proprietary metric that I love to look at. We have Um, you know, others calculate a similar sort of metric. We have it at PFF here that I'm using here where it's expected points added. So it's looking on a play-by-play basis, how many points you could calculate a team has added based upon the differences in down distance and field position on a play-by-play basis. So Patrick Mahomes has been not only a top performer year after year after year, either first or second in EPA per play, but he's also been remarkably consistent in not having negative games here. This was another negative game. So again, the third time this season this has happened, where if you look from the first game that he started at the end of the 2017 season, that he started one game in 2017, through the 28 season, 2018 season, all the way through the AFC Championship game, through the 2019 season, all the way through the the Super Bowl, through the 2020 season, all the way through the Super Bowl, and that entire streak, he had three games of negative EPA. So he's already equaled in the last eight games what he had done over the course of three seasons and playoffs. That is significant. That is something to think about. Now, the reason I wasn't that worried about two games before is because of a little bit of how we think about randomness. Now I'm going to do a little bit of, I'm going to dip into a little impromptu back to school segment here. So, for this here, we have to think about the Chiefs. What we're trying to diagnose is, is this a trend or not? And to figure out whether something is a trend or not, you have to look at the flip side of that. If it's not a trend, then it's randomness. So, you have to understand what randomness looks like. And the problem is, people generally mistake randomness for trends, or they're more, they're more likely to mistake randomness for trends than the reverse. Uh, a famous example, not a famous, but a common example is that in statistics courses, if you have a professor or a teacher, if you're in high school, what they can do is say to a class, let's say you had 20 students in your class, you'd say, what I want you to do is I want 19 of you to do heads, tails, write heads, tails on a piece of paper a hundred times, and then I want you to do it in a way that you think is random. So do it in a random way, but you're not actually flipping a coin. You're doing it in your head. Like, mimic what you would see as best you can through randomness. Have one person actually flip a coin a hundred times and then write down heads or tails. And what the teacher is able to do without fail, generally – is look through those 20 examples and pick out which one is actually random versus which one is versus the the one that is actually random versus the 19 that are mimicked as being random and why is that the reason primarily is because randomness has much more clustering than we suspect there are going to be situations out of 100 coin flips where you're going to have five in a row that go to one side. You're going to have you know, two, three in a row. You're going to have nine out of ten potentially go to one side. Eight out of ten go to one side in some of them. And when, when you're thinking about a random event, you're much more likely to alternate what's going on or you're much more likely to spread it out evenly than, you're, than you are to write down on a piece of paper tails, 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 heads, tails, 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 heads, something like that. Like You're just not going to do that because you're going to think that does not look, that does not mimic what randomness is. But in the actuality, randomness has clustering. So when we see clustering, the importance of it is we see clustering, we don't automatically say this is a definite trend. Now, we know it's not a random event, what's going on in the NFL. We know this is not flipping coins. We know this is an offense from week to week that is more similar to the last week than was similar to the last year. So we know that, but we also have to be able to figure out what is random and what's not. So if you're thinking about the the Chiefs, what's been going on here, they have been continually undervalued vis-a-vis our expectations for a while now. It's not just this season. They're two and six against the spread so far this season. And if you go back to the second half of the regular season in 2020, they were one and seven against the spread. So this has been continuing for a while. So this has hit the point now where I wasn't willing to say earlier that there is a problem with the Chiefs, where now the Chiefs are hitting my first degree on my scale. Remember the scale of that I introduced last week of before I was canceling people, now I have a three-step scale of you're on my radar, then you're on notice, and then you're potentially canceled? Well, the Chiefs' offense is now officially on my radar here because we have enough evidence now to say that there's something wrong, the lack of explosive plays, the lack of being able to turn these long drives into points, and even when it comes to the the turnovers, which this game we had a turnover that was off through one receiver's hands, although a bad pass, off a helmet, flying up in the air for for a interception. We had another that was a fumble after the catch for Kelsey, which are fairly, fairly random events. Uh, for instance, catches that result in a fumble by the receiver only happen 1% of the time. And we saw one in this event. We saw one earlier this year with... Um, Tyreek Hill, so it's happening a little bit more often for them. There is definitely a randomness element there, but we we can't be discounting it all now. We do have to start to be worried, and we do have to demand from the Chiefs to come forward and to start to play better this year. Now, we've seen that they can turn it on, as they did last season, where they started off one and again, they ended the regular season one and seven against the spread, and then came on strong until the Super Bowl. They can do that again, but we need to start seeing it and we need to start seeing adjustments here for the Chiefs or else I am going to start to be worried for this team. Okay, Uh, next game I'm going to go to Sunday Night Football, the Dallas Cowboys at Minnesota Vikings. The Cowboys won 16, I'm sorry, 20 to 16. Minnesota closed this one as a four and a half point favorite. In this one. Now, we talked last week about the fact of where the line had moved. When I talked last week, it had moved from two and a half on one side to two and a half on another side. I said that that indicated some bettors were leaning towards Dak not playing, but it was not decided, as some others had said. And I think that played out from the fact that it moved from two and a half to four and a half after. And those were key, key points. That three point moving from two and a half even to three and a half was a bigger move in win probability than moving from two and a half on one side to two and a half on another side. So I I thought that it would move up. I thought it would move up further than four and a half, honestly, to five or to five and a half, but it only moved up to four and a half here, and it looks like the the odds makers knew what they were doing there. My adjusted score, 18-14, so a lower scoring than what we ended up seeing, still a four point differential there, still obviously a win for Dallas versus a four and a half point spread towards Minnesota. Okay, so the headline here is Cooper Rush steps in and wins and wins the game. The backup quarterback, Palooza, steps in and wins the game. My alternative headline is that the Cowboys showed that they can win with their defense. That is, is is my alternative headline. Now, their defense has been good so far this year, but they've been heavily reliant upon turnovers. Not only have they, they have the highest turnover differential, but the types of turnovers that they've gotten, a lot of pick sixes, a lot of hugely valuable turnovers. They're way above any other team as far as the amount of points gained by EPA. If you look at expected points added, the amount of points gained on these turnovers that they've made going forward. So in this game, they shut down the Vikings offense. Uh, the Vikings offense, if you're looking at this game, again, again, only a 14-point expected score for them. They shut down that offense, zero interceptions, zero fumbles, only one sack that they've got, that they got in this game. And on the flip side of it, when everyone's talking about Cooper Rush coming in and winning the game, I mean, the fact is, while he had the 300 yards, he had a couple of touchdowns, you know, they had an interception, they had a strip sack, and they had a missed fumble. So the fact that the Dallas defense was that good, just on the fundamental basis, keeping the success rate For the Vikings, an offense that has been very successful so far this season, around 30%, that is really, really key and a great piece of evidence to believe in this Dallas defense a little bit more going forward. I mean, part of it was the late-down success, which isn't necessarily the most stable thing. The Vikings had negative 8.3 EPA on late-downs versus the Cowboys. The reason they were successful and they overcame all of these mistakes offensively was the fact that they had a positive 9 points on 3rd and 4th down as far as how they were able to convert at a higher than expected rate. And, you know, four turnover-worthy plays for Cooper Rush. Only had the one INT and the one strip sack, but he had two other turnover-worthy plays that did not end up being a... um, that did not end end up turnover. So it showed that he was not really very good in this game. This is not a game where you say, hey, we can win with a backup quarterback... We didn't really need Dak for this game. They kind of did need Dak for this game. Uh, Although they won, this was a stellar, stellar offensive, I mean, sorry, stellar, stellar defensive performance and a poor offensive performance for the Vikings. What's weird about this game is Cousins still had a 79 grade on this. You know, Cousins is one of these guys who's hacked our grading system a little bit by not making certain plays, by playing maybe a little bit more conservatively, but then also making some good throws. You know, he had a 40% pressure rate on only uh 2.7 time to throw. So that's a lot of pressure that he did face. So that did hurt him in this game. And again, that showed the Dallas Cowboys defense being able to generate that pressure while not giving up big plays on the back end, which is huge. So uh, are the Vikings, should we fork the Vikings at this point and say they're done? You know, they had the unsuccessful start to the season, then they came on and now another loss here. Well, they're three and four. They still have a 30% implied probability to make the playoffs according to betting lines. So we're not forking them at this point. Uh, there's still a chance for them to make the playoffs here in what is a strong top tier in the NFC, but a muddled second tier in the NFC going forward. And of course, Dallas is beyond in the driver's position when it comes to how they're playing in the NFC East. I mean, the Eagles maybe have some sort of chance of getting into the mix there. But another loss for the Giants. Uh, The Washington football team is completely dead. Sorry, spoiler alert there Uh, with another loss this week. So going forward, Dallas is very, very much in command. And it's really going to be whether or not they can get towards that number one seed, which is going to be hugely important with all those teams up there and is magnified. Now the importance of the number one seed with that being the only team that ends up getting a bye week. Okay, before we go on to the next game, I want to hit you really quick with a way to to help the pod, to promote the pod, even if you want to talk to friends about it, and that is unexpected promo code. Promo code unexpected at pff.com, 25% off. This is going to run through... The next few weeks, it's a way to show everyone that you're listening, that you're taking in the content, that you want to see the different betting tools that I'm using here to analyze the game, whether it's our green line tool, whether it's the player props tools. And we also have a way to identify all of our best bets right on the screen. Uh, Not the best bets for my podcast, but the best bets according to our numbers on green line. So go ahead. Use promo code Unexpected to get that discount and show your support for the pod. All right, let's go to Bucks Saints. 36-27 New Orleans, the final score. This closed at four points. The Bucks at a four-point favorite when uh, early in the week it was five and a half. The adjusted score here, 25-22 Tampa Bay. So they lost by nine points, but I had them being three points better. I'll, I'll get into why. And yes... Winner, winner, chicken dinner. This was one of my best bets was taking the Saints at five and a half. Like I said, it was five and a half before it moved down to four. So we got some closing line value there. And while the adjusted score says three points towards Tampa Bay and, you know, we bet it at five and a half. So it's not a big difference. The fact that they lost Jameis in this game, I'm giving myself a solid win on this one. Uh, I think it's fair to give yourself a solid win on this one. When Jameis was in, he was averaging half an EPA per throw when he was in there. He had a great throw early in the game. He uh, was tied seven all with the ball. When Jameis went down, the win probability for the Bucks had gone down from 70% down to 55%. So things were going in our direction before Jameis went out also. And I think it's hard to argue that while Simeon conducted himself okay, he wasn't great in this game. Um... And we'll talk about some of those reasons, and that's what leads into the fact that Tampa Bay really was the better team in this game, even though they lost. So the headline here is Saints defense stops Brady again. uh, I would say the alternate headline for me is don't jump off the Bucs bandwagon for this game. Uh, So let's talk first about the adjusted score, and then I'll get into some of the headline stuff. So the adjusted score, like I said, it's three towards Tampa Bay in this game. Uh... The fact was that Brady had big plays in both directions and we're discounting those. Now, the big plays ended up being more harmful than helpful in this one, especially the pick six at the end when the game was kind of over at that point, honestly, when when they brought in at that point. Um, and on the flip side of it, the New Orleans offense wasn't that great with Simeon in there. They got 7.4... EPA gain, so seven point four points were gained via penalty in this game. And if you if you watch the game, there were a couple of roughing the passer calls. One of them was a interception in the end zone that was called roughing the passer that was a little bit questionable, honestly. That got wiped off the board, and another one extended the drive, and then they ended up scoring. And again, in this game, the um the 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 Saints also went. On 4th and 4, and then 4th and 1 near the goal line converted both of those. The 4th and 1 at the goal line was obvious. It was a 6-7 point win probability that they gained on that. The 4th and 4 was a little bit closer. It was the Tampa Bay 32. They went for it on 4th and 4. It was only a 1-2% win probability gain. They got that one too. So by hitting those plays, which have the huge, huge leverage, the fact that the Saints hit both of those is also something that we look at and we say, okay, we're going to discount a little bit what the Saints did because of that. If you look at pure success rates in this game, and again, that's the most stable metric. the bucks were successful on fifty five percent of their of their dropbacks, which is a big rate. that's like a 90th percentile type of outcome. Uh, but they only ended up with a thirty eighth percentile outcome in their actual EPA per dropback or their results and there was a you know a fumble on a sack that was a little bit random. They lost ten EPA on sacks because of that he got sacked another time. And, you know, the pick six and all that other sort of stuff that happened that I mentioned earlier. That's what brings the score a little bit closer here. And the reason I say don't jump off the Bucks bandwagon for this is that this is not the first time that the Bucs have had trouble with them. And it's also a game where, like I said, according to the adjusted score, they were a little bit better. It's a game where the Saints defense is purposefully saying we're going to give up some big plays, but we're going to also put ourselves in a position where if everything goes well, Brady is going to struggle. And we saw both of those things happen in this game. There was a long touchdown to Mike Evans on Marshawn Lattimore that ended up happening. There was a blown coverage that ended up being another long touchdown for Tampa Bay. So they did get a couple of those plays, but they also got enough of the turnovers to make this a win for the Saints. So this is not the outcome that you would have liked to have seen from Brady and from the Bucks in this game. Three turnover-worthy Plays for Brady and 44 dropbacks here. Where, only, where we only had one in 328 dropbacks to start the season. A 62 grade for Brady, so not a good game. All those things sort to of, sort of happen. But again, when we talk about you know bad matchups, randomness, maybe this does end up being a problem for them um, if they face the Saints if they're missing a receiver like they were missing Antonio Brown for this one. You know Gronk went out after the first five plays. I'm not I'm not going to make a, I'm not going to be making excuses. I'm just saying that. It was a bad game for Brady overall, but he did have some high end plays and they did show that the Saints defense has some problems if you can make those high end plays that Brady is willing to take like he did for that long play to Evans for the touchdown. So he is willing to take that. And if you shuffle this up, you roll the dice on this one, this game, just play it 10 times. Uh, the Bucks end up winning most of the time on this game. So we don't need to get too critical for what's going on there. Uh, so what's the future for the Saints without Jameis? That's a big question going forward. I am pretty confident that Taysom Hill is not the answer here. Uh, I've seen some talk about maybe they trade for Teddy Bridgewater. You're not trading. The Broncos are not trading away their quarterback. I know they traded away Vaughn Miller, which we'll talk about during the Rams uh, wrap-up. But trading away Vaughn Miller is one thing for a really good deal for them to get a couple of picks. It's another thing to trade away your starting quarterback when your backup stinks when you're four and four and you're not af- close to being officially dead. The Phillip Rivers thing was posited out there. I think that's somewhat interesting. Um, but they may just have to roll with Taysom and with Simeon. I don't think it's enough to get them. Maybe I mean maybe it's enough to get them to the playoffs if the defense can continue to perform at this level, but I don't think it's enough to do anything once you have a high-end offensive outcome on the other side that you can't stop I don't see the Saints offense being able to to match that. And what does the future hold for Jameis Winston? I think that's a very important question. He not only conducted himself well on the field this year, he was an efficient player. He made some big plays. I think he has also been handling himself extremely well off the field. The training is there, not just in stories, not just in the tropes. Best of my life, best of shape of my life tropes. We've seen physically how much how he's in good shape. Supposedly, they really love him there. He's willing to do everything. He's a great teammate. I think he might be. If the Saints don't franchise tag him, which I'm not sure what they're going to do there, I think he might be the most attractive option on the market next season with a weak quarterback class coming out and not a whole lot else available. He might be the most attractive option as a younger guy. You know, he's very young coming into the NFL. As a younger guy who has turned his career around in a way here and still has some of that high-end play, which made him the number one overall pick early in his career. Okay, next game, I'm going to go Steelers at Cleveland Browns, 15-10 Pittsburgh Steelers win this game, this one closed at four, Cleveland minus four, my adjusted score is 24-29 Cleveland Browns, so the Cleveland Browns being five points better despite the fact that they lost by five points and a higher score, so let's talk about why, uh, but before we talk about why actually, let's, let's get into my headlines, I almost forgot about my headline. A bit here. So the headline, Baker Mayfield, this is what you're going to hear some places. Baker Mayfield isn't good enough to win without everything being perfect around him. That's what you're going to hear. My alternative headline is Baker Mayfield isn't good enough to win when things are failing around him. There's a there's a distinction and there's a difference there. It's not making excuses for Baker Mayfield. It's not saying he's not the problem. But he's not the only problem, and he doesn't need perfection around him. A lot went wrong in this game for the Browns, and I'm going to concentrate a little bit more on that, only because I think you're going to hear a lot about what went wrong for Baker Mayfield in this game, and whether or not he is the quote-unquote answer. Because let's face it, this is an off-season problem. An in-season problem, you can work around the edges here with Baker, But what you have to do as a team is you have to try to control the other things you control. You can't say Baker Mayfield be a different person. Baker Mayfield be a different player. Let's have an accurate assessment of who Baker is, who is a quarterback who can win if things are going right around him. They don't have to be perfect around him. But if they're going right around him, generally, on average, um, and he's not a quarterback when when things are falling apart around him, who can elevate an entire team. He's just not that guy. So you know that. So what are you going to do? Just throw your hands up and say, oh, well, we got Baker Mayfield, we can't win, so let's just pack it in for this season. No, you have to work on those things that you can try to control around him and getting those things better and putting him in a position where he can end up winning. So the reason for the score differential here, having Cleveland as a five points, being five points better by my adjusted score than having the Steelers be five points better according to the actual score, was the fact that. Uh, the Cleveland, the Browns had a better success rate at 43% to only 37%. They had a lost fumble for Jarvis Landry while we did not grade any turnover-worthy plays for the Browns. And that was a big fumble by Landry in a series where they could have, you know, taken a, taken the lead on that series. They would have been within the 20-yard line, maybe in the 15-yard line on that one. Uh, Cleveland dropped an interception on an egregious turnover-worthy play. For, uh, for Ben, which I if caught, you know, I don't want to be one of these guys that says, "Oh, that would have been a touchdown." Like as if everything would have been a touchdown. But there would have been a good chance of scoring a pick six on that one when it was dropped. And then Baker Mayfield did not have any turnover worthy plays. Another failed fourth down for the Browns on fourth and one. Again, it, they've been having problems on these fourth downs. But they're a good running team, and they you know they failed running the ball here. Their the rushing was bad the entire game, and I'll I'll talk about that. Um, so that's another thing. And then there were a ton of drops. Now, I look back at the drops that we saw here. It was 23% of Baker's catchable targets were dropped in this game. So that's a huge number. I look back at the drops. Eh, some of them were questionable. But some of them were really, really big plays, including a fourth and 12 near the end, where we labeled it as a drop on Jarvis Landry. Was it a drop or not? It would have been a tough catch, but it was a makeable catch, I will say, that we called a drop there um, on a very critical, critical play. Six drops in that game that that we had. Again, I think some of those were 50-50. Some of those were underneath to Dernus Johnson on swing passes and things like that, where they wouldn't have been huge plays. But some of them were big plays, like the 4th and twelve drop that we had for for Landry. Um, Odell Beckham Jr., I mean, we're going to be a lot of talk about him. He may be one of the headlines this week. Two targets, one reception, six yards. Just yikes. He's really fallen off and not really contributing anything here. I think that the Browns, as I mentioned earlier, they've known this is a problem for a while. I think they would have gotten off of him in the offseason if he wasn't injured. Um, and they thought they could get anything in this contract, but you had to you know, hold on to him and you couldn't really cut him with the injury. No guaranteed money on his. I think there's a probably a greater chance than not that he just gets flat out cut in the offseason than someone's willing to trade for him and take on $14, 15000000 million a year in that contract. Okay, so the running game, let's talk about the things that failed, because I mentioned lots of things were failing around Baker here. Running game, 27% success rate. That is a bottom fifth percentile type of outcome. The EPA per play on design runs, negative 0.25. This is a team that was five, six games of the season was at positive 0.2. Both of the worst measures of the season that we've seen for that running game, both were bottom 10, bottom five percentile type of outcomes. I know it's the Steelers, it's a tough game, but you're going to hope for something better than that. Um, coaching failed Baker a little bit here. I'm not going to get into play calling other stuff. I've seen some people pointing at the fact that Baker had some throws that he didn't make. That's fine. I'm going to stick with stuff that I can actually analyze here. And Stefanski, our, our god, one of our gods here, maybe not our god like Sashi in, in the background, you can see here if you're on YouTube, but one of our gods as far as coaching is concerned has been the most aggressive going forward on fourth down. Not aggressive. I, should, I shouldn't say aggressive because aggressiveness in and of itself is not great. Uh, Staley is probably the most aggressive. He's been the best at going it when you actually have an advantage. So they went for it on fourth and one on the 39-yard line of Pittsburgh. They did not get it to Chubb. Poor blocking. They should have been able to pick that up. They didn't get it. And then I think they got a little... Stefanski got a little bit spooked later on in this game. And that's something where he failed the team a bit here, where they had the ball on their own 49-yard line. It was fourth and one. I don't think it was a long one either, if I remember correctly, for, for for the game. This was a 3% win probability that they could gain. They were up by one point. And I know you could say, well, the Pittsburgh didn't have their field goal kicker. But as we see later on, not having their field goal kicker may have helped Pittsburgh move the ball down the field and go for it. To, to get a bigger lead in the game eventually. I ended up helping them in that way. So I don't think it really affected the call here. Um, and on fourth and one, Stefanski did the let's try to draw them off sides and then take the delay of game and then punt punt the ball. Um, ended up being a decent punt, but still, this is a call that he needs to make right here he needs to give them that little extra win probability I know they haven't had success on fourth down so far this year but again we're talking about you know 25 plays that have happened here you can have some randomness here this is a good rushing team this is a good offensive line I know they're missing Jack Conklin they've been missing Jack Conklin in other games and they've still been able to run the ball effectively you have to dial something up here and be ready to go fourth and one at midfield to convert that and put more points on the board to make it more difficult for Pittsburgh to come back and, and win that game. So that's, that's one thing of it. And so again, Baker being failed by, by the rushing game and being also failed by the coaching again, no excuses. He was bad too. He was bad. He was bad in this game against a tough, it gets a tough defense, but he doesn't have to have everything perfect around him to win. Uh, This is not necessarily an offensive effect, but also the Browns are the most penalized team in the NFL this year. So that's something I don't know if you want to put on coaching, you want to put it on something else, but it's something to also to to keep in mind here. Uh, On the flip side for the Browns is a good defensive performance. Uh, Miles Garrett continuing to put himself in position to win defensive player of the year. Uh, Five pressures, two hits, one sack. And Big Ben, his time to throw is only 2.3 seconds, his average time to throw in this game. And you still end up getting a sack and a couple of hits. So that's impressive for... Miles Garrett, very, very, very impressive. I don't have a ton to say about the Steelers, honestly, in this game. Ben had a 51 grade, so a pretty poor grade. 25th percentile success rate on dropbacks. Uh, But they were 65th percentile on efficiency because they had some big conversions that they ended up going in here. The running game was decent for them. Uh, 50th percentile as far as their success rate. And what was weird for them, again, we've seen them more and more with the Steelers where they're passing under expectation, which is a little bit weird for them versus prior years which you don't see that often and I mentioned earlier when they went for it fourth and two at the Browns two yard line down by a point this is a situation where you'd assume this would normally be a field goal that they're going to take for this offense they didn't have their kicker they ended up going for it they ended up converting on a play that was a little bit of a bounce in the ball in the air and a great catch there so that ended up helping them a little bit you could say by not having the kicker on that, on that game. And then what maybe is downplayed versus that fourth and two is the fact that Tomlin showed some oomph that, uh, Stefanski did not show later where earlier in the game, he went for it on fourth and one on their own 48. Uh, it was a huge, you know, gain of five win probability and Najee Harris picked it up again. He went forward in midfield and fourth on fourth and one. And, the, and the Browns then did not go for it. So a little bit of a failure there by Kevin Stefanski, something we definitely do not like to see. Oh, let's get into some sponsors here for the unexpected points podcast. And the first one I'm going to hit here is draft Kings. I'm going through a lot of the betting stuff here. So, you know, draft Kings is out there right now. You get, you can get the official sports betting partner of the NFL has you covered New customers bet $5 on any NFL team to win their game, and they get $200 in free bets. If the sportsbook is not available in your state, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can get huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot and million dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, promo code PFF, and you get... $5 bet on an NFL team, $200 in free bets. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only, $5 minimum deposit, $1 minimum wager. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I also can hit Western and Southern here, whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday night football. How about need to know for your financial future? Now you can ask about either or both and every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. So westernandsouthern.com, check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and the Western Southern Instagram. Submit your questions at Western Ask Chris. One more time. That's WesternandSouthern.com. Ask Chris. Chris, at C-R-I-S. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, let's go, Titans. And Colts, big implications for the AFC South in this game. 34-31 Titans in overtime. This closed as Colts minus three. My adjusted score, Tennessee 27-24. So the same three-point differential, but a little bit lower of a score. The headline I think we're going to see coming out in this game is Titans will feel the loss of their most important player, Derek Henry, who is out They say six to eight weeks. I think it's going to be the season. If this is really a Jones fracture, a fifth metatarsal fracture, you just don't come back from that. Or if you do, uh, it ends up being re-injury rate is very, very high on something like that. My alternative headline is the Titans are not going to play it as well. They're not going to win as many games with or without Henry going forward, but they're almost a shoe in for the playoffs at this point. So it doesn't really matter. So, as I mentioned before, Henry's out for, for the season. And I think some people are going to talk about this, you know, curse of, is it 350, 400, however many, he's getting all so many touches, right, every single year, and how often those players get injured afterwards. And I think we have to separate two different things here. How much is an accumulation, a wear and tear problem, and how much is it that every time you touch the ball, you give yourself a chance to get injured? So the more touches you have... And players who have a lot of touches one year are very, very likely to have a lot of touches the next year. This is the most touches anyone had ever had through eight games Henry had this this season so far. The more chances you touch the ball, the more chances you have to get injured. So regardless of wear and tear, Derrick Henry was going to have the highest chance of getting injured in the NFL if every single player was exactly the same and if there was zero element of wear and tear. To the game. He was going to have the highest chance of getting injured because he's putting himself in a position to get injured more often than anyone else, significantly more often than anyone else in the NFL. So I'm going to lean more on that, that higher chance of getting injured because of that, than I'm going to lean on the wear and tear issue, which is really, really hard to get your head around. And it's hard to separate the two because you can't have wear and tear without having a lot of attempts, yet it's the, just purely that raw number of attempts, even without wear and tear, that ends up leading giving you a higher chance of being injured. Uh, so the success rate in this game was actually slightly better for the Colts, but they had such hugely, hugely, hugely negative plays that we couldn't discount them all. And four turnover-worthy plays for Carson Wentz. So we can say turnovers are random, but when you have 4 turnover turner-worthy plays, it's not not so random. There was one that was a fumble that was recovered by a teammate in addition to the fact that he had a couple of uh, interceptions. Minus 13 EPA in those interceptions, especially, I think what looked really bad was the one where instead of just spiking a ball on a screen, he tried to, you know, switch hands and throw it, and then it ended up being... Uh, Picked a pick six on this one. But I also think that the, the interception in overtime where he's going to Michael Pittman down the field, that might have been worse in some ways because he had players open underneath. There was just no need to throw the ball down the field like that, and he ended up doing it. Uh, another reason we discount the Colts a bit here is they continue to do this defensive pass interference fest. They got a couple more of those uh, for Second Street Week. They're gaining three, four, five EPA on these plays, which... It's something that you can do, but basing an offense on underthrowing deep passes and getting DPIs is not going to be as stable as actually making plays. So the Titans in this game, the passing game was the key. Ryan Tannehill, our man, Ryan Tannehill, 55% success rate dropping back to pass, only 35% success rate running the ball. A.J. Brown was a star, 11 targets, 10 receptions, 155 yards, and a touchdown, 50 yards after contact, which mostly came on that 57-yard touchdown catch that he had. Uh, Tannehill did have two INTs. One of them looked really bad and was returned back uh, pretty far, although on review, it was really a great play by the by the DB there. Another one was, was questionable, but we did not grade it as a turnover-worthy play. Um, and also it wasn't that bad because it was fumbled back from a, from an actual effect on the game. It was fumbled back immediately afterwards. It was a tip pass at the, at the line, which was intercepted. Uh, the Titans were, Titans are now, like I said, when we go back to alternative headline, why they can play worse and it doesn't really matter for the Titans is they're just so much in control of this division. They're six and two. They have a three game lead over the Colts. They've beaten the Colts twice. So they have the tiebreaker there too. So it's a de facto four game lead over the Colts. And, you know, the Colts have a pretty easy schedule coming up, but so do the Titans. I think in the in the near term, we are going to hear some narratives about Henry's gone, so the Titans are struggling because they come off of these big wins against tough teams like the Chiefs and the Bills and the and the Colts. But, you know, they have the Rams coming up and the Saints coming up. And the Saints can be hard, hard or not. Defensively, they're pretty good, right? So so there's going to be some stories about that for the next two games. But then they get the the rest of the season they get the Texans twice they get the Jaguars they get and they get the Dolphins. So you're getting a few guaranteed wins almost there. And plus they're going to get the Pats, the Steelers and the 49ers who fall somewhere in between and you know you're, you're going to get one win there. So you get one win there, you get at least a few wins out of Texans, Jags, Dolphins, we're already talking about four wins, maybe you get another win throw in there. So we're talking about five wins, boom, you already got 11 wins on the season, you finish 11 and 6. You have no problem at all winning the division, which gets you a home playoff game. You're not going to be the number one seed, but then we're going to be the number one seed anyway. So this is not caused by Derrick Henry or not. Uh, The Adrian Peterson signing, I don't really know what to say about it. Maybe he's still got some juice, but he definitely fits into the mold of guy who can't catch so that, that kind of can't run routes. Maybe he can catch a screen, but can't run routes, so that fits into the Derrick Henry mold, and he could have success here, um, especially if he just gets the ball a lot, and people love getting a lot of volume there, although the Titans running game, maybe it's because Henry was hampered, but the Titans running game the last couple of weeks has not been very efficient at all. Okay, next game I'm going to hit is the Patriots and the Chargers. The Patriots win 27-24, the Chargers finished as a three and a half point favorite, which came down from five. So it was a lot of money here that was successful coming in on the Patriots. I had a little I didn't talk about it on the on the on the podcast. And in, you know, this is not just trying to hindsight bias here, but there was a, a little bit of a lean there that I had on the Patriots, but not enough to make it one of my best bets. The adjusted score in this one, 22-21. New England, so only one point as opposed to three points, but again, g- plenty good enough to call that a good bet on the Patriots. The headline in this game, what you're going to hear is, Patriots can compete with the top teams in the NFL. My alternative headline is, maybe the Chargers aren't one of the top teams in the NFL. You know, much better success rate for the Patriots in this one, but the Chargers had better efficiency, especially on the ground. Uh, big interceptions for the Chargers, including a pick six, was a negative 12.5 EPA. We did not... On on the interceptions for the charge, a total of negative twelve point five EPA, which is huge. We did not grade either one of those as turnover worthy plays. The one that was a pick six, I don't know, a miscommunication with Jared Cook, but I guess we're we're leaning towards not doing that as a turnover worthy play. And we should just talk about Herbert and say, yeah, this guy is good, but he's not. MVP level type of guy. And there was so much that came to those third and fourth down conversions early in the season, which have not been going their way. Now, it didn't go against them in this game. Like against the Ravens, they had difficulty doing anything on third and fourth down. So it flipped the other direction. This didn't flip the other direction. This was just normal, expected type of performance on third and fourth down. And because, but expected type of performance is not going to be enough for this team because they're not being successful enough on first and second down. Uh, Herbert's completion percentage is now down to 63% on the season. He hasn't been over 60% since week four. He is ninth right now in our passing grade, which is pretty good, but he's only 17th in EPA per play. So he's not giving you even top half performance from a quarterback now in, in EPA. And that is again, concerning because he's not getting the boost from fourth and third down play that we saw before. Um, there's an interesting play here in this game where I don't, you know, if we want to talk about. Staley and go for it and all this stuff. I mean, teams are just not going to do this, right? But when he was down by a touchdown in the fourth quarter with nine minutes left, fourth and six from their own 27, according to our numbers, that was actually a go for it there, that they, they would gain a couple of win, uh, percentage of win probability. They did not. They got a 39-yard punt instead. You know, Staley has done some unconventional things. This would have been very unconventional on fourth and six on your own 27 to go for it down by a touchdown with nine minutes and 42 seconds remaining. They did not do it, but it would have been the right call there in a game that you have to recognize you have a low probability of winning if you're punting away at that point, uh, down by a touch, a full touchdown already. So a credible difference in this game between Mac Jones and the other rookies is really is really becoming more and more evident. As much as you want to stick to your priors on Mac Jones and say low upside, great offensive line, great situation, great defense, all these things. I mean, you have to start recognizing what's going on with the numbers. Mac is 13th in our passing grade this season. If you look at Wilson, Lawrence, and Fields, they are respectively 32nd, 33rd, and 37th in passing grade amongst quarterbacks with at least 100 snaps. If we're transferring over to EPA per play efficiency, max not quite as high at 20th. But again, these other guys, uh, Lawrence, Fields, and Wilson now, in this order, 32nd, 35th, and 36th in EPA per play. So he is separated, and he's done what you kind of want to see from a rookie quarterback. Now, you could say it's a great situation, but I don't know if his weapons are really that great. But he's done what you want to see from rookie quarterback, which is give you league average play, and execute. That's important to see. This game, you know, played to Mac Jones' strengths. Again, it was a situation where they had a 52% pass rate, which was 6% under expectation. Strong running game, good defense, and generate turnovers on defense. Uh the good news for the Patriots and Bill Belichick, who was on notice for not being very good with his fourth down, they did go for it on fourth and one near the goal uh, on the goal line, down seven points early in the game. Bad news, they threw a fade. Don't throw fades on fourth downs. Fades are good for avoiding interceptions, avoiding sacks. We don't care about that on fourth down. So play call or the option that was taken by Mac Jones, not good, but at least they decided to go for it. And they still won the game, even having done that. Okay. Bengals Jets. This is this was a this is a weird one. Uh Bengals fans may want to uh you know skip forward here um, and not not here. The results on this one, because I know it's painful. The Bengals ended up 11 and a half point favorite. My adjusted score for this one, 34-31 Jets, by the way, if I didn't mention that. Um, My adjusted score was 30 to 24 Jets. So the Jets were the better team in this game. I know people are going to point out the helmet hit at the end, other things like that. Yeah, we can talk about that, but I'll, I'll talk about other things here. Uh, so the headline in this game is letdown game for the contending Bengals. My alternative headline, and this is what Bengal fans may not want to listen to, is Bengals may have just revealed that they were never really contending this year. And let me let me discuss this. Here. So the success rate for the Jets fifty fifth fifty five percent success rate with the ninetieth percentile to only forty six for the Bengals, which is still pretty good for the Bengals. Uh, but they had about equal. Expected points added. Uh, the Bengals ran the ball much better, but very few plays. They only had 16 rushing attempts. They're just not running many plays because they're they're so reliant upon big plays as an offense, and when they don't get it, the offense ends up stalling a bit here. Uh, the Jets suffered some big losses on INTs. Negative uh, 15.4 EPA. Both of the passes were off of receivers' hands. The first one to... Crowder was not the greatest pass, so maybe that's kind of like half of a turnover-worthy play. The second one went off of Michael Carter's hands. Both of those put the Bengals in really, really great field position. So again, they were getting good field position in this game. Uh, I know they ended up with 31 points, so they scored a lot of points, but the offense was not as good as you might think there. You might have think, think this, this was a defensive problem, and in some ways it was with the fact that such a high success rate for the Jets, but in a lot of ways that offense, we cannot let them off the hook here. So Mike White's performance. I think that's probably another headline coming out of this game is how well he did or didn't do, depending on how you view it, because there's a lot of underneath stuff in this game, 4.2 average depth of target, so You could say, oh, not a great game, 4.2 average depth of target. But when you end up with an 82% completion percentage and which is over expectation and you you get nine, nine yards per attempt and, you know, 400 yards, but let's not get into totals too much. This is an analytics podcast here. Nine yards per attempt, hell, if you can get nine yards per attempt, I don't care that you're only throwing at 4.2 yards down, down the field. You're being efficient. Efficiency is what you want to be, not how you're being efficient, right? Uh, so it's hard to argue with that with that production. He only graded at 67.5 for this, mostly because there's a lack of bigger throws. And I think there's also a thing with our grading where we're not going to give a lot of credit for someone executing quickly the right pass, not down the field. Whereas we should be giving them a little bit of credit on each one, but we're not giving them enough credit on that in my opinion. Plus, we hit him pretty hard on a dropped INT as a negative 1.5 grade he had on that as a wheel route to Michael Carter. Could could have ended up a pick six. So I get why we graded him really hard on that. But that wiped out a lot of the goodwill for and a lot of the good performance for Mike White, according to our grading. Uh, half of Mike White's passes came in less than two seconds. So he was peppering that thing out there. Uh, Burrow actually graded better at 76, but a negative EPA per play, I think he was, he was a little bit overgraded in this game and you know, Bengals fans, I know I said some negative things here, but I have some, some good news. It's kind of like a bad news, good news situation. So the bad news, which we've mentioned is you suffered a disappointing, humiliating gut punch loss to one of the worst teams in the NFL. So n- not great. Good news. Uh, last week I put aggrieved Bengals fans on my radar. And now you guys are officially off my radar. So congratulations, aggrieved Bagels fans who were who were mad last week about the fact that they weren't getting enough credit. Uh, after taking this sort of loss, after being humbled, I said, you know, maybe you guys needed to be humbled a little bit, needed to be humble a little bit. I think it's happened. So congratulations there. And good news for you, no longer on my radar. Uh, Panthers at Atlanta Falcons, 1913 Panthers. Falcons close as a two and a half point favorite. The adjusted score in this one, 24, 22 Carolina. And yes, ding, 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 ding. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. We had Carolina plus three. So we got some closing line value on that. Some important closing line value going from three down to two and a half on the Carolina Panthers in this one. Another pretty easy win. Um, even though the adjusted score, they were only, you know, a two point winner when you have them at plus three, I'm counting that as a strong win. So the headline after this game is out there, you're going to see is Darnold was bad, but the defense won the game. My alternative headline is Darnold was mistake free giving the Panthers a good shot at winning. And I think that is the key for what this team needs. I thought this would be a quote-unquote get-right game for Darnold. And by some measures, it was. He had one of the highest grades of the week, which I think was overgrading him a little bit here. Um, But but I think how he actually got right in this game wasn't necessarily making the high-end plays, but not having the mistakes. The mistakes were what were killing him. So he only had 5.6 yards per attempt, but didn't throw a pick. No turnover-worthy plays, no sacks, and then contributing on the ground with, again, he was a third in the NFL in a scramble EPA going into this game. He got another 5-6 EPA in scrambling in this game, 66 yards rushing, six first-down conversions running the ball, four scrambles, four, and then a couple of uh, uh, four design rush design runs on this one, which were mostly read options. And now he injured himself, so that's not great. but. That's how he has to be used be a little bit smarter about getting down. Um, He was 12th in EPA per play for the week. So he didn't, I don't, I don't, I didn't think he played well. He didn't look well. Optically, it didn't look well. But if you're 12th in EPA for the week, that gives your team a chance to win. Um, So this is the type of game that they can win. And I think that's important to look at this. What's really wild though, is this plan by the Panthers to implement a low pass rate, conservative offense really came through in this one. An absolutely wild negative 14%, I'm sorry, an absolutely wild negative 15% under expectation pass rate in this game. They only passed at 40.8% of plays. They only dropped back on 40.8% of plays. And, you know, Darnold, like I said, he scrambled on four of those too. And this is in a game that was fairly close the entire time. So... I don't know if this is always going to be what's what's going to win them, but they have a pretty good defense. I believe in their defense, the ability to generate pressure when Darnold is not making mistakes. Now, Amir Abdullah was really interesting in this game. McCaffrey may be back in the next week or two, but I think they found something with Amir Abdullah using him as the third down receiving back because Chuba Hubbard was just not able to do that. And Darnold missed McCaffrey a lot, as I've talked about multiple times on this podcast. He missed him a lot. So Abdullah came in. He converted two third downs. He had... Uh, you know, a few tar. he had four targets, three receptions, two two third downs that he converted there, which were big, big plays, something that they had been missing before. Uh, you can fork the Falcons, I think, at this point. Calvin Ridley is out indefinitely. We don't know when he's going to come back. Matt Ryan, 5.4 yards per attempt, three sacks. He took three sacks. Again, this is pointing to this Panthers defense's ability to generate quick pressure because he only had a 2.3 time to throw, only 146 yards. Two INTs, both of them were turnover-worthy plays. 30% fast pressure rate. Again, 30% of dropbacks, they were getting there in in fewer than 2.5 seconds, in less than 2.5 seconds is how quickly that the Panthers were getting there. So they really showed that, which is off-the-charts sort of number and something that's good going forward. And they just didn't have the threat down the field, and Pitts was getting covered up by um, Stephon Gilmore, who they brought in, played his first game, got an interception in this game. And I think the Panthers are still kind of in the playoff picture. No one's thinking about them at four and four. They're currently in seventh place, but they have a tough schedule is the problem. They have the Bills, the Cardinals, and the Patriots still on the schedule. And then they finish the year. This is rough. This is why they need some wins going into the end. The, the Panthers are going to finish the year Bucks, Saints, Bucks. Uh, that's why they're sti- they're at plus 500 right now, which is an implied odds of about 16 17% to make the playoffs. And the 49ers, Vikings, and Seahawks are all within striking distance, despite having a worse record at this point. Next one, Philly, Detroit, 44-6 Philly. Not a lot to say in this game. Philly was a a 3.5-point favorite. The adjusted score is 39-6. So that's actually pretty close to the real score. Uh, Biggest win of the season, according to my adjusted score, having a 33-point differential there. Uh, The headline is this is a meaningless game, and my alternative headline is You know, the Eagles are, are frisky. Maybe they got a a chance to do something and beating bad teams also matters. Now this brings, you know, Detroit is now 0 and 8. Now they're seven and one in the moral win victory category. We've been talking a lot about the moral wins that, uh, moral victories that the lions have been getting. Now they, uh, got absolutely destroyed in this game. So that's something to think about, uh, But what I want to talk about this game is the Eagles. I feel like there's still too much disrespect around them. I heard some people talking about this game. I didn't have a a play either way on this one saying, how can the Eagles be favored by three and a half, which is a, you know, over a key number or even three on the road against any team, let alone the Lions. Hey, you know, the Eagles are frisky, right? Um, They've also adjusted their offense, I think in a good way, where the first six weeks of the season, they were more pass happy. They were passing over expectation. And now they've been negative 12, pass under expectation the last two weeks. They only passed at a 30% rate in this game. Now, they had it in control, but still a very, very low rate. Jalen Hurts is third in EPA per play this week. He's someone who, you know, strategic runs, play passes down the field. I just like Hurts a lot more than some other people out here. And, you know, look at his weapons. Rookie Devontae Smith, Jalen Rager, who looks like a bust, um... Greg Ward, Dallas Goddard is okay, Quez Watkins. I mean, it's not like they're they're bringing out a lot of great players that he's playing with either. I mean, Aaron Rodgers loses all his weapons, and we have zero expectations for what he's going to do. Hurts doesn't really have that much on this team, and we don't really give him a credit on a week-to-week basis, and we seem to be looking to replace him every single week. Uh, The defensive line came into play in this game, and they're going to need them going forward. Six sacks, five hits, 40% pressure rate. They wanted a 75% rate, just absolutely dominant. and the Eagles are plus 400 to make the playoffs right now with a soft ish schedule. I, you know I, I don't I don't mind that for them maybe sneaking up instead of either the 49ers they're, they're all competing for this last spot in a way. instead of the 49ers or the Panthers or the Seahawks or one of those teams, maybe maybe these guys can sneak in here. Okay, uh, San Francisco at Chicago, 33-22, the 49ers win this game. They were a four-point favorite on the road. My adjusted score, 27-24, San Francisco, so closer. Uh, maybe you could say it's an unlucky loss if you bet on the Bears, but it's pretty close. Uh, I think the headline is, Justin Fields has arrived Although I haven't seen people getting too excited about Justin Fields. Some people were trying to rub it in on me after I called out the Justin Fields apologists and put them on notice last week. But my alternative headline is Jimmy Garoppolo ain't going nowhere after a lot of buzz about Garoppolo possibly leaving. And as much as everyone hates to admit it, the guy just keeps producing. The guy keeps producing pretty well. Now he hasn't been so great in the win loss category this year as he had been in prior years, but he was first in EPA per play this week and he was third in PFF grade. Normally his PFF grade is not that high, but he's just he just was not making mistakes and he's sixth in EPA per play this season. I know we hate him. I know it's all Shanahan. I know he's just, you know, not making Actually, I'm just not making mistakes because he does make mistakes, but I know he's just a robot executing the offense and he doesn't have the high end play and he can't go get you a bucket. He can't all do all this sort of stuff, but it's hard to say we're going to get rid of a guy who's six in EPA per play this season, even if it is based upon some stuff like a Debo Samuel, 85 yard touchdown screen. But even on that screen, I think it's, it's a little bit of a microcosm of the Jimmy Garoppolo versus what is he worth discussion? Yeah. It's mostly Debo Samuel. Yeah. It's mostly play design. Yeah. It's mostly execution, but if you look at Garoppolo on that play, he gets the ball and he flings it out so quickly. He has that quick re- quick release and he kind of flung it out, almost sidearm. He got that out so quickly that if it's not him on that play, if it's Trey Lance or someone who thinks even the slightest bit or has a little bit of a windup when they're throwing it over there and doesn't just fling it out immediately as quickly as he does, that probably play probably doesn't happen. So you don't give him a lot of credit on that play, but he is doing his part the leading to this execution where a lot of people don't give him credit for that is he the sixth best quarterback in the league because he has a sixth best epa per play hell no is he a good enough quarterback and a better quarterback that trey lance is going to be for the rest of the season probably and if you're a team like the 49ers where you want to make the playoffs i don't think jimmy garoppolo is going anywhere and this may really be a patrick mahomes type of redshirt season for trey lance after a lot of buzz in the last week that Lance may be ready to take over, uh, let's get to Justin Fields apologists. You you didn't you didn't annoy me that much to get canceled on here, uh, but you're, I'm just gonna keep you keep you on notice for now. So let's hope you know if you guys are being logically consistent, which of course a lot of you guys are not, that when you watch last week and you say, oh, with this team around him, we can't evaluate. Justin Fields. Literally, that's what Dan Orlovsky said, right? Can't evaluate Justin Fields with this team around him. Um, And then when he has a good game, let's not flip around and then say, oh, now we can evaluate him. And he he played well. But again, I'm going to give him credit. See, I give credit when credit is due. He had a good game. And what he showed in this game, I think, is what a lot of people knew about him. And it gave me Mike Vick sort of vibes here. Now, I'm not saying that as a negative. If you want to take that as a negative because Vic was a guy who didn't necessarily have the greatest grasp of the, the playbook, um, which he has admitted early in his career, and wasn't the greatest passer. But what I'm saying is what Fields did on a few plays here, like the fourth and one scramble and a few other scrambles where he got out of trouble, is he just showed people that he was the best athlete on the field. And I think even if we knew he was a great athlete coming into the NFL, we knew he had good instincts at avoiding tackles and making spectacular uh, Houdini type of acts to get out of there. If, if, even, if we, even if we suspected that, I should say, or thought we knew that as him as a prospect, when you see it in the NFL against that next level of athlete, that's impressive. And that is something that we're building more and more into our projection for him. Other people may have just been assuming it. I, I don't assume things. We see great athletes all the time who can't do stuff like that. Uh, I mean, if you look at the stats for Jeff Driscoll, as a quarterback, he looks just like Josh Allen. Does he play just like Josh Allen? Can he make plays like Josh Allen? No, he can't. Can he athleticism like Josh Allen? Does it translate onto the field? No, it doesn't. So I think Justin Fields, I'm putting him in that bucket where we're really going to get excited about the athleticism side. Now, at the same time, I can't, you know, I have to put things in context and it's not, I'm not trying to hate here. I just got to put things in context for the fact that his passing grade still 66.8. So not that great, um, again, the scrambles, which have been helpful for him. Very helpful for him. The last three starts, he has 20 scrambles for 190 yards after only having three scrambles for 18 yards his first three starts. So I think it's very, very helpful for him. It helps raise the floor for his play significantly. Uh, still, it's, it's, it's a decent amount, right? He, he took four sacks and 39 dropbacks. So higher than 10% sack rate. Again, in this sort of game, he's been over 10% where no one else is uh, on the season. And he had, if you combine his scrambles and his sacks, he had 12 sacks and scrambles on 39 dropbacks. So that means roughly 30% of the time, he's not throwing the ball when he drops back to pass. It can work or it can not work. It worked here because he has that athleticism, but it's not always going to work. It's not always, it's not as reliable scrambling in these types of plays and making these types of big plays as it would be if they could execute the offense. Now, maybe it's Nagy's fault that, that they're not executing as much on these plays, but still 30% of dropbacks, you're not executing. You're scrambling or you're taking a sack. Um, And two of, of Fields' four sacks, I should say, were scramble attempts. So they weren't as bad in some ways where he was trying to, he started, he was like, getting into scrambling before he was sacked. Uh, so those are just all things to keep in mind here. Arrow up for fields. If you can continue to play like this, we'd like to see a little bit more in the passing offense and executing there on that level because some games you just will not have, the scrambles will not work out in the same way that they did this game going forward. Okay, before we get into the last handful of games here, we're going to hit our last um, sponsor. Actually, you know what? We're not going to hit our last sponsor. That's all we had. We already hit all our sponsors. Okay, let's go um, rams Texans. This is an interesting game. 38 22 LA closed as a 16 and a half point favorite. So they did not cover in this game when they were up by 30 points at one point. But my adjusted score has a 35 to five. So they were 30 points better. So this is a kind of a brutal beat for those who bet on the Rams late. Because at one point, I think there were 15 and then moved up to 15 and a half and then 16 and then 16 and a half. So, ooh, if you got in there at the end at 16 and a half, I feel sorry for you. Uh, the headline on this one, Rams beat up on... Hopeless Texans, my alternative headline is, yeah, that sounds about right. That's, that's what happened in this game. But again, beating up on hopeless teams, I like that. I like that more than other people do. Uh, 53% success rate for the Rams offense versus 39 for the Texans. Uh, quarter EPA per play, despite running a ton versus negative one negative 0.16. Stafford averaged half an EPA per play. I talked about this. I don't think I talked about this podcast as much, I think talked about a little bit, but I definitely talked about it on Twitter. Is that we should be getting more about Stafford MVP? I don't know what's going on here. I was low on him to start the season, but I adjust as results come in, and he's been the top quarterback in the NFL by far in his efficiency. But yet, Josh Allen's still number one in EPA per play, even though Allen kind of struggled this week, which I will talk about shortly. Uh, only a fifteen percent pressure rate on Stafford. If you want to, you know, pick nits on this one and and give him uh, anything that could possibly be bad. His his passing rating has not been as high as you would have thought for him, but he had an 88.1 in this game, zero sacks, zero turnover-worthy plays. Why was it closer? Well, the Texans outscored the Rams 22 to nothing in the fourth quarter. (sighs) And also poor late down play from the Rams early in the game. They had multiple chances to score that they did not come away with for touchdowns early in the game. Could have extended it far enough where they would have won this game. So bad beat for Rams, betters. This was another game, and I'm not BSing here again and hindsighting on this, but even at 15 points, I did kind of lean a little bit towards the Rams, but it gets pretty wonky once you start to get out in that area. So I did not recommend it as a best bet. Miami at Buffalo. Speaking of best bets, 26 to 11. The Buffalo Bills win by 15 points as 14-point favorites. Barely covered here. The adjusted score, I have 21-18 Buffalo. So only three points. Oh, this was... a loss here for us on the best bet of the Miami Dolphins, plus 14, but it was a loss that we should have won. I'm taking another process W here, and I'm not, you know, I'm not adjusting these numbers. I'm not faking this sort of stuff. It says it was a three-point differential, and that's plenty, plenty of a difference between that and a 14-point spread for me to take a process W here. Now we're three and one uh, on games that, according to the adjusted scores, we're plenty in one direction versus what the actual scores are. That will even out over the course of the season. You know, this is a game that was 3-3 well into the third quarter. So I think the headline here, when people see the final score, they see a 15-point victory, is it would be, Bills are going to march on to the number one seed. My alternative headline is, the Bills' offense continues to be... I was going to say, I have mediocre here. That's, that's overstating it. But continues to be good, not great, while the defense is carrying the team. And this happened again in this game. Let's remember, this was 3-3 late in the third quarter. This was a game where they scored a few times in the fourth quarter to, and then they scored a touchdown at the end that they didn't even really need to score after an interception with a couple of minutes left to go um, that ended up extending it from 9 points to 15 points. Um, success rate for the Bills was only 38th percentile here. Uh, and their EPA per play was only in the 48th percentile. So, you know, below average game for the Bills, despite getting that nice little touchdown there at the end to give them a boost uh, when the game was already basically over, where after picking up a first down, they could have just slid and kneeled out the game rather than scoring that last touchdown. So generally, why is this so close? Well, they had almost equal success rates, the two teams in this game. The Dolphins missed a 36-yard field goal, which is a 90% plus type of field goal that you should make. And then the Bills turned around and made a 57-yard field goal, which is maybe a 50% field goal. Uh, Weird fumble in this game where they snapped the ball and then it bounced it off of Mike uh, Jisicki when he was coming in motion. Uh, so those two, those happened. And the missed field goal and that fumble were the second and fifth most impactful plays in this game. So those two very random mistakes were, the, were very, very impactful. Uh, the Like I mentioned earlier, the game was 3-3 until the end of the third quarter. And then Tua threw this interception down nine with two minutes and 30 seconds left, which then the Bills uh, ran a little sweep play with Josh Allen. He could have just slid down at the five-yard line and ran out the clock, but instead scored the touchdown and they win by 15. You know, Allen ended up finishing with decent numbers, but it was carried by the 6.6 EPA that he had in scrambles. The passing offense still very, very disjointed. And it was a horrible game for Tua. I mean, I, I know that he's under pressure a lot. It was a tough defense. So maybe you want to discount that a bit, but he had a 47 grade and their offense could have done anything in this game they could have really, really been in it. The 15 points is very, very deceptive for this game. And I think that's really the takeaway. Uh, The Dolphins, I think we're forking them. They're done for this season. Now it's just trying to get, not give away such a great pick. Since they're giving away their own pick this year, they need to get some victories so that it does optically look, look really, really bad. I'm not writing off Tua, but I don't think they have a better option uh, unless we're talking about the Deshaun Watson business. And I'm not getting into that again for the 10th straight week after we've the, we've been okie-doked by all these reporters into thinking that there was a trade to happen week after week after week when it all seems to have been uh, smokescreen. Okay, we get into some of the last games here as so we can pile through these. Uh, Jacksonville, Seattle, thirty-one to seven. Seattle wins. They were a four-point favorite. Adjusted score thirty-one to eighteen. So a little bit closer, but not great. Uh, the headline: Se- Seahawks still alive for the playoffs. The alternative headline is: Is this the end for Russ in Seattle? And I think we need to start thinking about that now a bit. Now there was this DK Metcalf quote. I don't want to make too much of it, but he basically said, "Ever since I've been here, no one has ever shown." The trust in me, I'm paraphrasing here, so I could be a little bit off. Uh, the trust in me to throw the type of, you know, back shoulder, a little bit of a, a, just throw it up and let DK go get it type of play that we saw Geno Smith throw to him for that first touchdown. And it was a not so subtle shot at Russ there. I mean, if there's some friction there with Russ, there's obviously friction with Pete Carroll. There was talk in the off season about him maybe wanting to leave. I don't think they're going to turn it over to Geno Smith, but You never know like the Seahawks could galaxy brain themselves into thinking Geno Smith played well. We won or had close games with him close losses with him. If we get good trade compensation for Russ, we're able to plow that in. Uh, We save a ton of money. If we trade away, Russ, we're able to put that into free agency. We're able to do what we've always wanted, which is just run the ball and have Geno Smith game-manage and throw it up to DK every now and again and show more faith in there. Eh. Russ, I think this is like a subtle, like a good performance by Geno even against a bad team. A couple of okay performances uh, but losses before that, plus more tension being shown here. I think it raises the chance that Russ is gone after the season especially if they don't make the playoffs this year, right? Down in this final stretch. So this is very, very important going forward because what happened in this actual game is like, who cares? Other than the fact that, you know, what do we think about Trevor Lawrence is maybe something to ask. You see the high-end plays, you see the low-end plays, uh, 32nd in EPA per play, only better than Wilson and Fields so far this year, a worse grade than Wilson so far this year. Uh, I'm going to cut him some slack. I'm not going to go full apologist on him, but a lot seems to be going wrong. For this, for this Jaguars team, including coaching, including offensive line, including everything else that's going on there. And he's trying to make big plays. There's not being successful. He's trying to make big plays, which end, some end up being pretty ugly interceptions. And I don't mind that as much. And I think that's probably more correctable in a way than you know fundamental things where you come from college, like with Fields and you're you're holding the ball too long and you continue to do that and take sacks. I think that's more of a problem. And I'm just not sure what the Jags are doing. I mean, Jamal Agnew and Dan Arnold are now their two main weapons on offense on a team that has Marvin Jones, that has LaVisca Schnault. That's what they're really running with more than anything else. It's just a sad, sad situation and uh, tough for Jags fans. I think there's, there's probably some potential going forward, although I don't know it's with Urban Meyer as the guy there. Okay, Washington Denver this is the last game of the day. We're going to get through it. 17 to 10 Denver, 4 point favorite. The adjusted score I have 24 23 Denver, so closer. And the the headline is no one cares. My alternative headline is, you know, the Broncos are not totally dead, and I mentioned that earlier. They're 4-4. Four and four. They have a 30% implied probability to make the playoffs. Yes, the Vaughn-Miller trade happened. It's not a teardown. So let's talk about this trade here. I should have talked about it for LA. I forgot to here. But this is an excellent trade for the Broncos. They're trading a 32-year-old player on the last year of his contract. They're eating some money. They're going to get a second and a third-round pick. Now, it's going to be a poor second and third-round pick. We could pretty much guarantee now that LA is going to have a great record. So it's not going to be great, but this is just a a big move for them. Um, Two day, two picks for this type of player is great. And then alternatively for the Rams. Yeah. You're really just going all in, but this is like a different type of all in. This is not all in. Like they were going before to draft a quarterback all in to get an upgraded quarterback. Who's going to last a handful of years, at least all in to get Jalen Ramsey, a foundational type of player, those types of all in moves that they've made. This is a one. This is a half a year deal for a 32-year-old who's at the end of his contract. And if you have to re-sign him, I don't know if you even can. I don't think they have the cap to re-sign him. So they're giving away multiple day two picks for half a year for a player who is on the decline of his career. I don't know, man. I don't believe in that. Not when you've been making moves that you want this team to compete next year. You want this team to compete the year after that. You want this team to compete the year after that. You have the players to do that. And Stafford is going to last that long. Yeah, I, I can't get behind this one. And I know a lot of people are like, well, it keeps on working. It keeps on working. Yeah, Ponzi schemes, which is kind of like what the Rams are doing with their draft picks and having no young talent coming in, cheaper talent coming in. Like these schemes can work for a really long time until you get an injury or two, other things like that. I mean, they're getting lucky. Like if if Donald or Ramsey or Stafford or someone goes down, well, Stafford, would, you'd always have a problem if your quarterback goes down. But you know, these guys are all staying healthy too. So if they have some injuries there, they could have some problems. Uh, This is, as far as this particular game, I mean, Washington just continues to have the worst luck on third and fourth down. Maybe it really has to be a Heineke situation here. Negative 13 EPA on late downs, one for five on fourth down, five for 14 on third down. Uh, They had the ball inside the Broncos 45 different times, only got 10 points in this game, multiple blocked kicks, uh, just this Washington offense cannot cut any slack. So, you know, Washington and Miami are battling out for most disappointing team so far this season. All right, I want to thank everyone for sticking with me so far. Use promo code UNEXPECTED, uh, 25% off at PFF. Welcome so much. I'll be back at you Friday to break down everything with the Thursday night game and also preview my week nine best bets. Hopefully we can continue to have success on that front. And I thank you all. Have a great week. (music) Thank <music> you.